This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. We are in the fourth week of a five-part series. And this five-part series is on the five preconditions for insight. And it's, uh, I've been for the last few weeks teaching about the Magi, from, from the Magia Sutta, which is a, a very short, brief, rel- relatively simple sutta in the Udana, where it de- describes five conditions that are needed for insight to arise. And the, gen- the basic story is that there was a monk who was traveling with the Buddha. And one day after his alms round, he was walking back to where he was staying with the Buddha. And he was walking along the river and he saw this beautiful grove and it was so nice. There were these cool shade trees where um, next to the river. And he thought, gosh, if I could just meditate here, my practice will take off. <laughs> I'll surely succeed. And so he really wanted to leave the Buddha and go practice in seclusion in this um, lovely little grove that he had found. And he repeatedly asked the Buddha for permission to go off and meditate alone. And three times he asked, and each time the Buddha said, it's not a good time, Magia. But he insisted until finally the Buddha said, do what you think you must. And he only lasted a very short time and then came running back to the Buddha, (laughs) at which time the Buddha gave him this teaching that there are five conditions that are needed as to develop insight. There are five conditions that are needed to be able to practice in seclusion. And these include good friends, virtue and restraint, engaging in talk on the Dhamma, wise effort, and wisdom. And they're sequential because it's expected that one who has good friends and restraint and talk on the Dhamma will endeavor to apply energetic effort to abandon what is unwholesome and to cultivate what is wholesome. So tonight's talk is on this fourth condition, which is effort and energy. And from the Magiya Sutta, it says, Furthermore, Magia, a bhikkhu lives with energy instigated for the abandoning of unwholesome states and the acquiring of wholesome states. She is vigorous, energetic, and persevering with regard to wholesome states. When mind deliverance is as yet immature, Magia, this is the fourth thing that leads to its maturity. So here... We have effort described both in terms of the purpose for which that effort is applied and also the quality of that effort. The purpose is described as being applied for the abandoning of unwholesome states and for the acquiring of wholesome ones. I think this description might be familiar to many of you as a kind of reiteration of the classic description of right effort in the Noble Eightfold Path, where it says that one should avoid unwholesome states 
that have not yet arisen. One should abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. Cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen and maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. I really appreciate the Buddhist teachings on effort, on energy, because the skillful application of our effort is one of the most important meditative skills that we learn. And the application of our effort in meditation is quite strategic. We apply our energy toward a purpose, and then we adjust the quality of that effort in order to achieve our goal. Just trying hard is not necessarily skillful. Keeping busy is not inherently virtuous. Making an effort is not enough. And we're not going to get an A just by trying. We must persevere. We must put ourselves forth. But we can't just keep striving and striving and striving. The application of our energy must be skillful. It must be appropriate. It must further our aims. As the Magiya Sutta states, he lives with energy instigated for the abandoning of unwholesome states and the acquiring of wholesome states. He is vigorous, energetic, and persevering with regard to wholesome states. Do you catch these phrases? They're quite energetic. He lives with energy instigated. He is vigorous, energetic, and persevering. They describe a a powerful commitment and dedication of our energy, of ourselves, to a task. Do you think, do you feel, do you sense that you live with your energy instigated? Are you vigorous? Are you energetic and persevering in your meditation practice? Do you have a clear sense of the direction of your effort, the purpose, the possibility, what you're cultivating and what you're abandoning? Now, one of the main points that I actually want to make tonight might be an uncomfortable one. Basically, I want to make the statement that laziness is a huge obstacle for meditators. As simple as that. But that might sound harsh. It might sound politically incorrect to say in California Dharma circles. And it might sound a bit judgmental especially if you're accustomed to hearing meditation instructions that emphasize trust, relaxation, allowing, rest, gently being with experience, making friends with our experience. I often use this very soft and gentle language as I describe the way we relate to our meditation object, to rest the attention with the breath, 
to be with our experience as it's unfolding. Many people find that it is necessary to first learn to relax before we can actually apply our efforts skillfully. We might need to learn to release, to trust, to rest before we can bring forth an energy to that practice without it turning on ourselves in harsh and self-critical voices. But chronic self-judging is not actually a side effect of the factor of effort. I would consider it not so much an aspect of over-efforting, but more a manifestation of the classic obstacle in Pali called dosa, which is usually translated as ill will, aversion, or perhaps any kind of hate form hate-filled states. Aversion can be outward-directed in anger and blame and aggression, really explicit hatred, but it can also be inwardly-directed through self-judgment, self-criticism, and any kind of thinking that diminishes our self-respect or our self-esteem. When dosa arises, even in subtle forms of impatience and fault-finding, maybe nothing that we'd say was hatred, but it's still just tinged towards the negative, we might be perverting what could otherwise be a powerful and healthy application of our vital energy and the power of our interest. So as we develop and refine the factor of effort, we discover how it is we relate to our own energies. And as they intensify through the application of our effort, as they build up, if our efforting is tinged with an unwholesome tendency, such as aversion, it might seem as though that aversion becomes stronger. It's important to see that. It's simply being highlighted I don't believe the effort is creating the aversion. But through the effort and the intensification of the energy, it might become illuminated (laughs) and quite strong or clear. This becomes one more thing to meet with mindfulness and to work with skillfully. When we work with effort, though, one of the things people often discover is that we are simply lazier than we would like to admit. Very often, we just don't bother to change a habit that we know is causing suffering. We let days slip by, perhaps, without meditating. Or we sit down to meditate and forget to be aware. We don't apply the energy to make the most use of the time that we have. Or we just don't make retreats a high enough priority to get to one. Or understanding the liberating teachings important enough to us to actually dive into the texts and to try to contemplate them. One way or another, we might find ourselves 
not doing something evil or wrong, but just inclining towards what's easy, the familiar comforts, complacency with our conditioning. And we forget that we have the potential to live with our energy instigated. This really does not make us a hopeless meditator. It shouldn't become another excuse to judge our self-worth. But we do have a choice here. There's a moment for discernment. Because every time we go with the flow of conditioned defilements and don't put forth the effort to abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome, subtly we may be strengthening the very patterns that cause suffering. There's tremendous power in just coming to a sitting group, just putting it on your calendar every Tuesday, (laughs) and just doing it. Because you get reminders, and the tendency to slide into other habits is so strong that without regular reminders, the force of conditioning often overpowers the mind. But a daily practice, a regular sitting group, cultivating Dhamma friends, all support this bringing forth the energy to cultivate the wholesome and abandon the unwholesome. There are some people, though, who seem to take to the Dhamma really easily, who right from the start seemed to love the Dhamma and find meditation easy joyful, pleasant. They take their first meditation class and rush home to, with, with genuine diligence to start a disciplined and profound meditation practice and just simply sit every day. Develop their practice in a very consistent way. But I must say this is relatively rare. Most people have to struggle an awful lot with all the distractions and all the habits that seem to make this simple act of sitting peacefully and quiet so difficult. Maybe there's a karmic disposition when somebody just takes to the Dhamma. Maybe they're just lucky And in those waves of sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's difficult, they happen to be on a sometimes it's easy week when they started their meditation practice. So right from the beginning, they were like in the the swing of that, that inspiration. It's very inspiring to see somebody really connect with the Dhamma. That wave of enthusiasm that students sometimes experience is really quite joyful and delightful. It sometimes can be a little bit uncooked, one could say. (laughs) Sometimes people get so enthusiastic about the Dhamma that they're almost on a soapbox preaching about the Dhamma just a little bit too soon. Um, Sometimes people take their first weekend retreat and are so thrilled with meditation that they decide that they are going to give up their job and start to teach meditation. (laughs) And I have had students who really take to the Dhamma really fast but only have like this much experience 
want to start to teach immediately. Sometimes this happens when there's a lot of ease in the meditation at first, which really does happen for some people. And sometimes it also happens that somebody could be asked to teach relatively quickly in their practice, more quickly than I might trust. Because I have to tell you, I don't trust ease in meditation. I enjoy it, sure, but I don't trust it. Ease is not a factor of success, and it's not a sign of skill. It's not a refuge in the practice. I prefer to see how somebody applies their efforts over decades, with or without the social support of teachers or professional identities. How skillfully does somebody work with the pleasant states and the painful states, with the exciting moments and the dull moments? How does somebody deal with adversity, with difficulty? Is the Dhamma our refuge? Is the Dhamma our guide? Meditation practice and Dhamma practice requires tremendous patience, perseverance, and trust. I like the analogy of the, um, of the person who's chopping wood. Somebody might be splitting wood, and they might take an axe and strike at a piece of very hard wood many times, say 10 times, 15 times, and finally it splits. Well, the first nine times or 14 times weren't wasted. That was part of what allowed the final strike to break through. The persistent, steadfast application of our effort is what leads to success. We're not going to have breakthroughs in our meditation practice every time we sit down. We don't need our meditation practice or every retreat to produce a cathartic experience. Imagine how exhausting that would be. (laughs) Meditation looks so easy. It's quite deceptive. We might think we should be able to succeed quickly and that there's not very much to learn about it, right? We just sit and breathe. What's the big deal? These days, it seems everybody wants and even expects that practices should be easy, even verifiable and measurable. There are all sorts of approaches to meditation that are available. And sometimes it appears to me as though the most popular ones are the ones that promise quick and verifiable results with as little effort and time as possible. The instant awakening experiences. Now, obviously from my tone of voice and for those of you that know me, know that I don't quite agree with this. But I think it would also go too far in the opposite direction to adopt the view that effort is inherently virtuous or that without pain, there's no gain. Because often we do need ease. We do need to learn to relax. 
if we make strong efforts from a position of tension, just like in, um, in exercise or in yoga, you have to release into the, into the posture. You can't just like enter into it and like really harsh or you'll hurt yourself. The same with the mind. We might need to learn to relax, to trust, to release into our experience before we can move forward with strong effort. It's important to recognize the value of ease But please don't be seduced by the promise of success through mere relaxation. Rest, relaxation, trust, and letting go are valuable elements of skillful practice. I encourage you, I encourage everyone to take the time to relax in the context of your meditation practice, to find ease in being with your own experience, to find comfort in a wise relationship to your own minds. Sometimes we'll need to begin with a cultivation of attitude, an attitude that includes friendliness and trust, patience, even playfulness. Sometimes we'll get tired as we're meditating, and we'll just need to rest for a bit. Just kind of relax into the experience. Let the experience flow through. Sometimes we struggle with enormous difficulties, pain, grief, deeply conditioned defilements, cravings, fears. And we might sometimes need to back off a bit, just to regain a bit of perspective. We're not always charging forward. We have to have a place to back off, to retreat, to rest. And sometimes we drop into wonderful, blissful states, and we benefit by resting in those wholesome states, letting them wash over us, letting them fill us, letting them rejuvenate us, just dwelling in those pleasant moments, those peaceful moments, moments of calm and tranquility that sometimes arise in our spiritual lives. But valuing ease, calmness, relaxation does not imply that exertion, striving, and strength of effort is problematic. Really, What have you discovered in your lives simply through relaxation, through that one mode, through that one door? Do you only learn what's easy for you to learn? I don't think so. Or you'd probably be home watching TV. Do you only do what comes naturally and quickly and easily? No, I don't think so. The group of people who drag themselves out of the house in the evening in order to develop their meditation practice ask more of themselves and are willing to face their own lives, their own hearts, their own minds. If we only relax, we might become lazy. If we only do what comes naturally, we won't learn very much about ourselves. 
we must be willing to put forth rather vigorous efforts sometimes, but do so skillfully and wisely. We might need to relax sometimes and create the space around aversive habits before we apply strong effort. We will surely at times need to persevere when practice gets difficult and not judge our development based on whether it's easy or difficult, whether it's pleasant or painful. It is inevitable that some periods of practice will be easy and others will be difficult. Sometimes, though rarely, this difference is caused by or affected by the style of teaching or the meditation technique. But usually, it's just the flow of things. Sometimes difficulties emerge because of the meditation, the intensity of the meditation, or they just emerge because of the depth of the silence. But most experiences are not actually triggered by meditation. It's simply what happens, what's arising at that time in our lives. At the end of a retreat, students often have a tendency to compare their experience with their expectations, with previous retreats, with, that, with the experience that other students describe in the closing circle. But comparing usually causes more difficulties than it clarifies. Of course, I would wish that my friends and students have profound and blissful, in-the-flow, glowing, delightful, joyful experiences every time they sit down to meditate and on every retreat. But does it work that way? No. It's not the nature of life. Having a difficult retreat or encountering difficulties in the mind or struggling to apply a new technique or discovering painful tendencies or having deep insights into the nature of suffering are all to be expected in the unfolding of the practice. Most of the time, it isn't the insight into the nature of suffering that we want. You know, it's usually the insight into peace (laughs) or joy or bliss. But it really is through understanding suffering that freedom is realized. Even the most experienced and adept meditators face profound difficulties, and they are sometimes very intense and deeply challenging. Our practice tests our insight. It tests our character and our equanimity. It tests our commitment and our faith. It tests our mettle. At every level of development, we challenge ourselves to explore subtler and deeper roots of defilements. We learn how to work with and overcome the challenges that the refinement of our mindfulness reveals. It's not so much that meditation gets progressively easier. It's more that we don't mind so much that we see the nitty-gritty stuff of our own minds. It's like we can ride the waves a little bit more 
but it doesn't mean that it isn't just as painful. Nobody wants to look at their mind and see ick. Whatever your ick is, whether it's in the greedy camp or the aversion camp or the just straight old-fashioned arrogance and delusion stuff. Nobody wants to see that. But as our mindfulness develops, we are almost on the lookout for it or we're attuned to it because we've developed so much purity in the mind that what is impure is striking. It's almost repulsive to us. This is actually a good thing. It's a very good thing that we notice it and that we find it painful. And so we learn to work with whatever that sticky stuff is that we find within our hearts and minds. If we want to consider if practice is useful, if it's working for us, we don't look to the continuum of ease and we don't look to the pleasure continuum. We consider whether or not our practice is weakening unwholesome states and developing wholesome ones. In the Kalama Sutta, the Buddha says, when you know for yourselves these things are unwholesome, these things are blameworthy, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. But when you know for yourself these things are wholesome, these things are blameless, these things are praised by the wise, these things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should live in accordance with them. We basically consider the effects of how we experience and how we know the world so that we can persevere in our efforts and skillfully adjust the quality of our engagement with life to bring about more wholesome states and to face and weaken the inevitable unwholesome states that are unearthed through this inner exploration of the meditative life. I'd like to have a few silent minutes. I'm going to then pose in the silence a couple of questions that I'd like you to contemplate. And then we'll take a few minutes to share those in small groups. In what situations do you try too hard? And how do you recognize that excess effort? 
And in what situations do you not try hard enough? And how do you recognize that complacency, that laziness or lack of energy? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.